Our topic today, the climate debates. Is the climate really settled? Um, would you be shocked to know that the debate is among the world's top scientists about whether or not, in fact, we have a climate change crisis? So what are they debating? Well, they're debating the facts. So can we bring them together? A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, the facts are that there is a vigorous scientific debate going on about climate change, despite what so many politicians or what you might hear in the media. Frankly, the, the public is unaware of this intense debate, and it's a debate that is going on among scientists. As noted by prominent physicist Mr. Steve Koonin and former Undersecretary of Energy and Science during the Obama administration, the debate is not simply about little things or little things on the side, but fundamental things, big things. So do these debates matter to you? Well, if you think about it, people are in the political realm talking about all kinds of major changes in policy that will impact every kind of aspect of your life, from the stove that you'll use, whether it's natural gas, or whether you'll eat um, a host of variety of bugs, or whether you'll be able to drive a car, whether it'll be electric or not. So these changes, these debates are very significant. Well, I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. William Happer, a preeminent physicist and scientist known around the world that can give us a little bit more sense of what's happening in this scientific debate that you may never hear about. So Dr. Happer is Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. He's a specialist in modern optics optical and radio frequency. Dr. Happer has served in numerous U.S. administrations at a senior leadership level, including as Director of Energy Research under the Bush Administration on Fusion, Environmental and Climate Science, the Human Genome Project, among others. And he also served for one year as a Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director of Emerging Technologies in the National Security Council in 2018. A warm welcome, Dr. Happer. Thank you, David. Well, you know, it's incredible to uh, talk with you, Dr. Happer. Um, I really am uh, honored that uh, you could join us at this discussion. And I do want to remind our audience to please pose their questions in the chat. You're welcome to do that. But I would like to set the stage because we've got a lot to cover in today's far-reaching discussion. But I want to talk to you first about yourself and science. Um, so, Dr. Happer, you're a scientist. Can you help us understand what kind of scientist you are? Well, David, I was trained as a nuclear physicist, and so I know sort of a lot about quantum mechanics and the things that go <laughs> with nuclear physics. Uh, I've done a lot of work with uh, lasers and atomic physics and a fair amount of atmospheric physics, too. I'm probably best known for having invented the sodium guide star, which is uh, used by many uh, astronomical observatories today on ground-based observatories to 
measure atmospheric properties and remove their effects on how well the telescope is able to see stars and galaxies. And so I've had a fairly broad career and uh, I know a lot about physics and chemistry and actually quite a lot about climate. I, I would guess I know as much as most climate scientists do, maybe Very more. Good. <laughs> so Dr. Happer, it's astounding. You've done more than 200 peer reviewed articles. Um, uh, I, it, it's hard to comprehend that, but that's really all been focused. Is it been mostly on that specialty in, in optics or is it across the board in, in climate science as well? Well, most of it has had to do with uh, radiation interaction with, you know, atoms and nuclei. And uh, of course, that's what happens with uh, global warming. It's the interaction of thermal radiation from the Earth with the molecules of water and carbon dioxide and methane that are in our atmosphere over our heads. So it's something that uh, comes naturally to me. I know a lot about it compared to most people. Now, it's interesting, Dr. Hopper, you've served in many ways um, in many kind of pinnacle positions within the scientific community, uh, certainly around the world. In, in many ways, I'd, I'd describe you, and these are, these are my words, not yours, but as a scientist, scientist, um, in fact, you've even um, worked with many top um, decision makers in the world. You've even uh, chaired the uh, so-called Jason Committee, uh, really a, 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 a powerful team of, of top scientists on many different issues, including the, the Genome Project. What motiv motivated you to serve in those capacities? Well, I've always enjoyed uh, learning about how the world works and uh, I discovered that I could actually get a job doing that, you know, so very few people have the privilege of being paid for doing things they like to do. You know, normally your job, you know, you do your job and you go home, thank God it's Friday. When Friday comes, I say, thank God now I can get a little more work wow. done. <laughs> That's great. So most well, scientists are that way. I mean, I'm certainly not unique. Real, okay. real scientists, yeah. Now, um, Speaking of science, um, I want to just take a little bit of a strategic view of science. So science is, of course, a, a very powerful intellectual endeavor. Um, it teaches us truths, but we know that our understanding of science is dynamic. It does change. So can you help us understand the scientific process? Like to a layperson, how would you describe the scientific process? I think the first thing you have to uh, recognize is that real scientists believe that there is um, objective truth out there that doesn't have anything to do with uh, humans. You know, it's there whether humans are here to observe it or not. And, uh, you know, it's absolute. So the, the Congress or the Parliament can't repeal the law of gravity or they can't repeal, you know, uh, <laughs> Coulomb's law of electrical charges interacting. Uh, and so that's very different from much of human life where, uh, you, you know, it, it's a social thing where uh, decisions are made, uh, actions are taken because of people agreeing. <laughs> but the sun moves, uh, you know, through the galaxy and the earth moves around the sun because of laws of gravity that have nothing to do with people. And climate is the same way. Climate is doing things that... Uh, it's always done and will continue to do and have nothing to do with people. 
it's true, for example, that there's a small effect from greenhouse gases, from CO2, but it's very trivial. And we can talk more about that later. Mm-hmm. But the main thing about science is that there is this objective truth out there. And when I hear people tell me about scientific consensus, that's absurd. You know, there's no such thing as scientific <laughs> consensus. Science is independent of consensus. You know, I think Mike and Crichton's, you know, uh, said it very well. He says consensus is uh, is a subject of politics, and uh, you know, science is very different. And if it's consensus, it's not science. <laughs> mm-hmm. so when you hear there, there's a consensus that uh, the science has settled on, you know, global warming, you know, e- either this person is an absolute fool, or you know, or or a you know, a propaganda artist or something, but he's not a real scientist. Right. Because yeah. science is, an, is is earnestly looking at the truth and putting those hypotheses in place, using data to confirm or deny it, but to systematically keep searching for the truth, right? It's not seeking right. consensus. That's absurd. That's right. And, and most scientists recognize that, uh, what we consider the best science today is always an approximation. And as you study more carefully, you discover there were little things that you missed or sometimes big things that you missed. And so you continue to learn. Uh, it doesn't mean what you thought you understand uh, understood previously is completely wrong. Usually it's, you know, pretty good. For example, we went to the moon and back using Newton's laws of celestial mechanics, but they're not quite right, as Einstein showed, you know, the, because of effects of uh, general relativity. Uh, Newton's laws uh, are not quite correct, but they're good enough to get to the moon and back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, okay, so I, I want to ask you what some may think is a funny question, and that is, is there really such a thing as climate science? Well, uh, <laughs> it brings to mind my friend, uh, <laughs> you know, the um, John Nash, who was the mm-hmm. subject of the movie, A Beautiful Mind. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had a schizophrenia. And so he was really out of action for many years, for decades. And, but he gradually got better as he grew older. And, and finally, the Nobel Prize Committee uh, uh, awarded him the Nobel Prize in economics or something, you know, for his invention of uh, game theory, which is very important e- economics. And they were a little nervous. I remember they sent over a team from Sweden to ask his friends, I was one of them, whether uh, he would embarrass them if they awarded the prize because reporters would come and talk to him and uh, he might say something that would be just more than they could take. <laughs> And we all reassured them that, yeah, he, you know, he's eccentric, but he won't, uh, he won't embarrass you terribly. So sure <laughs> enough, when the prize was announced, uh, there was a flurry of activity. Reporters showed up at Princeton, and uh, a young woman reporter shoved a microphone in front of his, <laughs> in front of his face, and said, "Well, you know." Dr. Nash, what did you think when you heard that you had gotten the Nobel Prize? And so there was a long silence while you could, you could see the uh, wheels turning. And he said, well, I actually thought it was more money. 
then uh, the, the reporter didn't expect this, and she had to think of something else to say. So she said, well, Dr. Nash, what do you think of um, uh, social sciences and other sciences outside of mathematics and physics and chemistry, you know, the traditional ones, uh, gender science, for example. And uh, again, there was this long silence. You could see the wheels turning. And he says, well, if the name has science in it, it's not science, right? Okay. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so climate, for, 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 are you saying that climate science back. is a bit like gender <laughs> studies? Is this what you're saying, uh, Dr. Happer? Wow. Okay. Well, that might be a revelation for some people. I know it is for me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, 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 I guess the, the humbling thing about this is if we're looking at the prediction of climate, um, and this is probably the understatement of the year. It is terribly complex, is it not? It's very complex. That's right. Yeah. yeah there, there's a reason for that. You know, it's uh, the interaction of the atmosphere and the ocean. Both of them are fluids, and uh, fluids are notoriously difficult to uh, predict and to work with. And uh, so it's no wonder that it's a difficult field. Uh, doesn't mean mm -hmm. you should give up but you should right. claim more than you can do with it. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you were to rapidly summarize just some of the key variables, I mean, we have obvious things like the sun to what else do we have? Water vapor. Do clouds matter, Dr. Happer? Well, the Earth's climate is, is dominated by the sun. You know, we get all of the energy that keeps us warm from the sun. Uh, there's maybe a part per thousand that comes from geothermal heat coming up from the uh, interior of the earth, but that's trivial. Mm -hmm. So we're completely dependent on the sun. I don't know if you've ever been in a solar eclipse, but a total eclipse, one of the first things you notice is that it really gets cold. You know, if it's clear day, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're kind of shivering by the time that the uh, eclipse is over. And so for just those brief few minutes that the sun is eclipsed, the earth cools very rapidly, you know, in blue skies, a picture especially. So the sun provides heat and, um, you, you know, you've got to get rid of that heat or the earth would uh, overheat. And so we get rid of the heat by radiating heat back into empty space. Space is nice and cold. And so you can radiate all the infrared you like and uh, uh, come to an equilibrium temperature. So earth has been doing that from the beginning, you know, it's Mm -hmm. heated by the sun and it cools off by radiating to space. Now that radiation to space comes from partly from the surface and partly from clouds radiating to space and partly from greenhouse gases, especially in clear skies when there are no clouds around. And so these three things, uh, the surface, the clouds and, and uh, gases are re-radiating solar heat back into space. And greenhouse gases uh, make it a little bit harder to re-radiate because they radiate typically at higher altitudes where it's cooler. And uh, we should be grateful for that because, you know, if you look at what the Earth's temperature would be like, it would be like Winnipeg winter you know, all year round <laughs> without mm -hmm. water vapor and, and uh, carbon dioxide. So thank Thank goodness for greenhouse gases. Exactly. Uh, so when we think about climate change, often carbon dioxide yeah. 
is fingered as this uh, extraordinary gas that is kind of at the cause of, of virtually all our concerns that climate change becomes an existentialist threat. Is that, yeah. is that a fair well, comment? Of that, that's complete nonsense. You know, carbon dioxide is, uh, is a greenhouse gas and it causes some warming, but water vapor is much more important. And if you include clouds plus water vapor, water in both forms uh, completely dominates uh, the greenhouse effect of the earth. Carbon dioxide is uh, uh, a, sec a runner up. So okay. without clouds, carbon dioxide might be about a third of the greenhouse effect, two thirds of okay. the water vapor. And if you add clouds, then uh, water just completely overwhelms CO2. Okay, so just to just to clarify that again, so I can hear senior fellow from Frontier, uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, saying, right. um, "Yes, carbon dioxide is actually not a pollutant; it's actually vital for life around the Earth." Um, so you'd agree with that that thesis that carbon dioxide is actually important? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Patrick Moore couldn't be more correct about that, and uh, the Earth. Uh, really lives on carbon dioxide, <laughs> you know, we, mm -hmm. you and I are sitting here breathing out carbon dioxide because that we need the carbon to live, you know, in the form of, you know, food, you know, proteins and uh, carbohydrates, fats, uh, but they're all made of carbon and they, uh, mm -hmm. not very long ago, they were all carbon dioxide in the air that was captured by, you know, cornfields or, you know, pastures wow. and, uh, you know, eventually passed on to us. Okay, yeah, but but we, this we, this we, whole we, thesis we, about carbon dioxide. Then, are you concerned about the environment? Like, are you uh, somehow being reckless in your statements about carbon dioxide? Like, how how are we then in this existential crisis? We hear this all the time in Canada. We even have what's it called? Um, it used to be called uh, Environment Canada. Uh -huh. Has been renamed as uh, climate change Canada uh -huh. to emphasize that we've got to be focused on this whole existential threat. What is going on here? Why is the public debate saying that we are headed over a cliff? Well, you know, if you look at human history, it's full of uh, occasions like this, you know, during the middle medieval times, they, uh, they had witch hunts, you know, and they thought witches were, uh, controlling the climate and uh, causing crop failures and cold winters, uh, witches were very seldom accused of making the climate warm. It was usually making it colder, but uh, everybody believed it. And it was actually worse with the elites than it was with the common people. You know, during the Salem witch trials in the United States, uh, the common people in Salem were not all that sure that this witch story made any sense, but all of the judges who had Harvard degrees, you know, and uh, the, the preachers with Harvard degrees uh, were absolutely sure that America was infested with witches and we had to hang them all, you know, wow. otherwise the harvest would fail, you know, and okay. so it, I, I, I just think people would be shocked to learn that there's this kind of public debate going on that's asserting that we have carbon dioxide is a pollutant when in fact from a scientific point of view you're saying no that's not true and that there's actually a scientific debate then 
with among scientists about what's happening with our climate because climate is always changing is it not yes of course well you know look for the last you know 40 50 years climate has warmed a little bit uh it's been about a tenth of a degree per decade which is much much less than the predictions of uh you know the climate establishment in fact you know i wrote one of the first uh papers on this back in the 80s, and I got it wrong too, you know, I predicted two or three times more warming than we've actually observed. You know, I've, I've learned more since then, so I, I think I understand what was wrong. Wow. But uh, So you, you actually make mistakes as everybody does. Everybody makes mistakes, of course. Uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so, so we have a lot of politicians, a lot of the media, we have a lot of uh, even celebrities, actors, um, out there talking about the existential nature of climate change. So is it just because it's popular to talk in that language? Is it used as a rationale to make a lot of policy changes? What's going on here? Why, why, what's, what's your thesis on this? Well, it's, it's hard to know. I, I think there are many reasons. You know, there are sincere people who uh, have been misled. You know, they're mm. not terribly... Uh, strong scientifically, they're not numerate, and so it's very hard for them to come to their own conclusion. And so all they hear since childhood is there's this climate emergency. And, uh, you know, we, we have short lives, so we can't remember what our grandfathers saw or our great-grandfathers, but, mm -hmm. but we saw more or less the same climate as we have, although it was a little bit a little bit cooler because we were coming out of the little ice age in the 1800s. But uh, so there, there are sincere people who've just been misled. And then mm -hmm. there have been uh, opportunists who've made a lot of money, you know, from pushing uh, sustainable energy. And, uh, you know, they get uh, chairs at universities and, uh, you know, prizes, uh, Nobel Prizes even. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. for saving humanities, you know, uh, it's all nonsense. They're not saving yeah. anybody. Uh, and then there are, uh, I, there, there are just so many motives. They're, they're, none of them are quite the same. Oh, yes. Right. And um, what's, what's interesting, I think, in the last few months, we've learned a lot about what we've long time suspected is that there's quite a network of government agencies that have really worked hard to push a certain narrative regarding climate for whatever reason right. and even censor it and i think that most recently within the twitter files and i right. encourage people to look at them with an open mind yeah. it's 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 almost disturbing how when we need in fact open debate and discussion regarding all kinds of issues it's clear that there's a, a very a significant network uh, pushing a only one-sided narrative. Does that did that surprise you to learn of that? I mean, you've been intimately involved at the highest level of the U.S. Yeah. government. Did that surprise you? No, I mean, you know, 1991 when I was director of energy research. That's 20 years, what 30 years now, a little more than 30 years ago. You know that we were still pushing climate alarmism. I was a little bit guilty myself because. If I pushed it, my budget would be bigger the next year. And so I was uh, infected with the same uh, problem, you, you know, as it says in the scriptures, you know, where 
where's your where your treasure is there will your your heart be also <laughs> Interesting. that's true of, of uh, scientific funding you know so you know the best way to get funding is to invent a threat and then uh congress will give you money to address the threat and uh then you have to hire people to help you address the threat. And then since you have more people working for you in Washington, that means your salary goes up. So there's a whole uh, uh, system of sort of perverted incentives that, that cause, you know, imaginary threats to become supposedly real threats. And, uh, right. you know, lots of people benefit and uh, mm -hmm. the average person is screwed. <laughs> Okay, wow. So given this kind of strange dichotomy, we've got this kind of public debate going on, uh, Dr. Happer, uh, we've learned about that and how, in your opinion, that's really not based on the science. But meanwhile, there's um, real scientists such as yourself that are debating about the climate. So can we talk a little bit more about that and what the nature of that debate is about? Well, I think the heart of the debate is... Uh how much feedback uh, is there from uh, direct effects of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, methane or nitrous oxide, how much feedback is there that would amplify the direct effects or, or attenuate it? So right from the beginning, it was clear that the direct effects of carbon dioxide uh, weren't big enough to worry anyone. You know, one of the very first uh, uh, environmental uh, <laughs> uh, alarmist was Steve Schneider. I, I always admired him because he was very straightforward and quite honest in what he said. But he started out as a, uh, a global cooling uh, alarmist. This was back around 1970, 71. And indeed, the climate was getting colder then. I remember that period. I, I lived mm -hmm. in New York and I looked out over the Hudson River and I could see ice flows coming down the river, they got worse and worse every winter. There was more and more of it. I remember 1976, I remember you could practically walk to New Jersey across the ice flows. Uh, and so during that time, uh, lots of people were getting publicity, uh, predicting, you know, the end of the world from mm -hmm. global cooling, including Steve Schneider. Mm -hmm. Actually, Dr. Hopper, I remember as a kid watching a documentary, I think it was by uh, Leonard Nimoy talking about uh, the uh, existential threat of, of uh, global cooling, right. the, ice, the, the new yeah, ice age, yeah. right? Well, lots mm -hmm. of people believe that. I think Steve Schneider was probably sincere. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did calculate the effects of CO2, hoping that CO2 might help. And uh, so he didn't put any positive feedbacks in. He just took the direct calculation, which mm -hmm. is probably the right answer. And he pointed out that it, it wasn't enough to matter. You know, it's... Uh, so around a degree, if you double CO2, a degree, a degree centigrade, you know, the degrees they use in Canada, we still use Fahrenheit. In the United okay. States. So I do have a question there. So when you refer to feedback, and right. I should just clarify this for a sec. So the, the main um, contention is that carbon dioxide will lead to a degree or two of, or an increase in warming of the earth yeah, about one over the next some 80 years, right? Two, about one. About one. About one. Okay, sorry, yeah. I stand corrected. About one degree. Wow. Yeah. So then, but the, 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 when you say frequency, do you mean like kind of a domino effect? Because of that one degree, all things, all kinds of other things will happen? Or, yes, or yes that, that, that's feedback. Now, one thing most people don't recognize is that nature is full of feedbacks. 
and most natural feedbacks are are negative, not positive. You know, they uh, they they try to prevent change, not accelerate change. It's called Le Chatelier's principle. It's uh, well known for a century or more. And uh, somehow climate is supposed to be different, that the feedbacks in climate, not only are they not negative, but they're very strongly positive, which in itself is very unusual. You know, I can't think of many systems like that. And uh, there's no evidence, uh, observational evidence that it's even true. But nevertheless, they've been able to get away with the claims of these enormous positive feedbacks. So the innocuous warming that Steve Schneider first calculated, which was probably correct, uh, has been turned into this threatening warming that's three times, five times, you know, the, the sky's the limit. You know, <laughs> Every year it seems to get worse. And yet nature okay. continues to point out that the right answer is probably that the feedback is as close to zero. It is uh, okay. So, so there really isn't a existential threat, but there's still debates going on among the climate science, or sorry, among the scientists, including yourself, about the climate. Yeah. And so the question then is, what do we do about it? Because climate, um, the threat of of the climate changing and creating creating an existential threat is being used as a pretext to change a lot of public policy, uh, from the cars that we drive to the stoves we use, um, even agriculture. They're talking about in Canada, um, frankly, telling farmers how to farm because of um, the use of fertilizer has uh, nitrous oxide. I mean, you know the, pol the host of policies better than I do, but it is incredible um, the the list, it's like a laundry list of things that they're using on the pretext that this is all a threat to people's lives. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's being used by many people as uh, a power grab, you know. It, uh, it's, uh, people have pointed out it's quite similar to uh, a secular religion. And, uh, you know, religions uh, at their best are, are wonderful things, you know. They preach morality and uh, make human existence better, but they're often corrupted and uh, they're simply used as control for people. And uh, <laughs> so you promise, you know, brimstone and <laughs> fire, and uh, unless you donate so, such and such to my church. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so uh, it, it's being used in that, uh, uh, bad sense uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, bad religions have used in the past. And Okay, so unfortunately fear can be used to induce people to do a lot of crazy things, uh, including uh, bad things for themselves, right? That's right. I mean, look, if you turned in a witch in Salem, you got half of their farm. <laughs> so okay. it's an incentive to do that. <laughs> well, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Now, you know um, and work with uh, Steve Coonan, um, he's been quite public. He's the former undersecretary in energy under the Obama administration, no less. Um, to talk about, given this kind of scientific debate about climate, is there a way that you could actually bring these scientists together and have a real scientific discussion or debate? Um, and they're called red-blue exercises. Can you tell us what a red-blue exercise is? Yes, uh, both. Steve Coonan and 
me too, have worked a lot with uh, the defense community in the United States, and uh, we spend a lot of money for weapons. Uh, and uh, once you've signed a contract, you know, you're bound to spend a lot more. So before we buy a new fighter jet or a new armored vehicle, uh, it gets subject to what's called a red team, blue team review, where the proponents of the new system argue its merits and a uh, sort of a devil's advocate team is put together to uh, oppose this and to point out what the possible flaws are, where it might be wrong. And from time to time, the critics uh, prevail and it turns out that this thing has a fatal flaw and, and you don't do it and you save a lot of money. So, for example, the F-16, one of the world's best fighter planes, went through harsh red team, blue team reviews, and uh, it passed them. And uh, partly as a result, it was one of the best uh, machines ever built. You know, it's uh, still being used. And uh, so, so the red, the red blue exercise is really a critical way to bring incisive science, evidence, data to bear. Is almost like a, a, a an ingenious quality control check. Yeah, it's a, an um, on a, any discussion, control. really. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, and uh, you know, climate is uh, stands out because it's never been subject to that. You know, it's it's always been uh, reviewing itself. You know, it's a little bit like you know, after six days of creation, you know, God looked at what he had done. He said it was good. It's very good. You know. <laughs> Well, so that, that's the same attitude uh, mm -hmm. climate community, you know, look what we've done. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's all right for God, but it's really not okay for most humans. You know, humans wow. are fallible and they make mistakes. But what you're, what you're pointing out, Dr. Happer, strikes me as a, uh, a very thoughtful uh, insight about the, the paradox of the situation. If you actually care about climate, if you care about all the impacts of these incredible policies that are being instituted across the board that really have a profound impact on people, then surely a red-blue exercise would be very timely and very potentially very helpful in terms of its benefits. Is that right? That's certainly my view. Uh, many people don't share it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, so what would you do? What would your advice be as we look at the, um, uh, the political landscape in this debate? Um, how would we institute some kind of red-blue exercise? Is there, is there a willingness among different scientists to come together and design such an exercise and, and do this over a period of time? Well, the person who's worked hardest to try and make that happen is Steve Coonan. You know, he uh, worked with the Academy of Sciences in the United States when I was in Washington to try and set up a review and uh, Mr. Trump was willing to back it. Uh, his advisors were adamantly against it, and so it eventually <laughs> didn't take place, but uh, it could have taken places, and it could have had participation by uh, uh, the Academy of Sciences. And uh, so I, I hope sometime in the future, something like that will be resurrected and yeah. it will happen. Well, it, it seems like a very promising insightful idea to bring different sides together and in many measures bring them together. I'm sure there's a lot of things that they would agree on, but at the same time really learn from each other to actually better serve 
frankly, the cause of, of uh, better public policy and, and humanity. Um, so in this context, though, um, when you look at actions in terms of, you know, lay people like myself trying to understand the complexities of climate science, we want to link or base public policy on good science. So what can we do in terms of action and where is, where is your hope in all of this? Well, I think the uh, more we can educate the average uh, citizen of Canada, United States of the world, for that matter, uh, about the facts of climate and other science, for that matter, uh, the better off we will be. It will make them less susceptible to hucksters uh, who, uh, who prey on their ignorance. So education would help. And that's a problem because uh, the other side uh, understands that and, and they've turned much of uh, elementary education into uh, more propaganda than real education. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah. so, you know, students learn that, you know, all the adults agree that this is the right answer. And so, well, that's the right answer. Yeah. So when we should be teaching them science, ironically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the poor students, they don't really learn what science is. You know that, as I as we began this, you know that science is a truth that's outside of humanity. It's the way the world is, and uh, it's complicated. You know, uh, there's a famous uh, quotation by uh, Einstein. Uh, when someone asked him about, suppose uh, suppose your theory of general relativity is wrong, uh, you know, they're going to test it at, uh, you know, the next eclipse. This was 1919 or something, I think. It was the Eddington expedition, but Einstein uh, <laughs> says, uh, originally in German, but I'll try and translate it into English, uh, well, the Lord God is subtle, but he's not malicious. And <laughs> so what he was trying to say is that, you know, the, the real realities of science, of the way the world works, gravity, everything, climate, COVID, is subtle. It's really hard to understand it. Uh, but if you keep working at it, uh, honestly, you'll eventually understand it. You know, you won't be tricked by uh, nature or by God, whoever made the world the way it is. And um, so I, I think that getting the idea across that, that there really is this uh, reality out there that if you're honest about it, you can figure out what it is and it'll be good for humanity. It, it, you, if you really know how the world works, you can work with it and make it work for you. But uh, the way, uh, much of science is going now, it's, it's like, you know, uh, like savage witch doctors, you know, this is what the witch doctor tells you, you know, all the witch doctors agree. And so that's what the truth is. But that, wow. of course, that's not science at all. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Happer, for this very interesting discussion and for challenging all of us to not only ed be educated more about climate uh, science, but also about this real debate and perhaps a solution in terms of how we can come forward as we care both about science and public policy. So thank you so much, Dr. Happer, for all your leadership and work in the area of science.
Uh, we're so grateful that you could spend this time with us. Thank you, David. So that's it for today. And remember, without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking and nor are you free. So please continue to ask good questions and do not be afraid. And on behalf of all of us at Frontier, thank you for joining us. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.